0: must day our October 7th satsang is finished and now I'm going to answer the rest of the questions that I did not get to in that hour. Here uh, someone says they are curious about the symbol of the cross in general and specifically of the Saint. Thomas cross. We well, see the cross is an ancient symbol. It has nothing to do with Christianity as such. The uh, ancient Navajo elders used to draw a circle and then put an equal bar cross in the circle and say, if you can understand this, you will never die. Now, I could make speculation as to what it meant when they drew it, but since I don't have any authority for it, I I won't bother. Uh, therefore, the cross in general, I'm sorry, I have no idea. The Christian cross is... Uh, a little bit different. The original Christian cross was the Egyptian cross, the Ankh. It is a cross. Really what you see basically is uh, a vertical line then a horizontal line and above it should be a circle. Now the Ankh Uh, To look more artistic and more appealing, you get an oval. But in reality, it should be a circle. The Egyptian symbol of the soul was a perfect circle with wings on each side. The idea being that the spirit flies through the tunnel of eternity, or the hallways of eternity, under its own power, under its its wings. You see, the, the, the perfect circle does not occur in nature. Therefore, it's an ideal symbol of the spirit, which is outside nature. It's never material, and it's never really a part of relative existence therefore it's a symbol of true consciousness of the authentic self and placed in that way it means the transcendent of transcendence of duality and also since there's a vertical line of anything that supports it. It needs no support. So for it, there's no up and down, and there's no left and right or back and forth, whichever way you would want to put it. But the Christians adopted it because it was understood to be a symbol of life and of renewing life, and life, spiritual life, Uh, was the essence of even the very death of Christ. You see, someone like Christ, of course, can never die, neither can you or I. But everything about them is of life. And therefore, not wanting to just show a diagram of a crucifixion cross, which the Romans love to nail people to and kill them and torture them to death. The Christians use the Ankh. By the way, you might be interested to know that no one could be a Christian bishop in those early days who could not heal. And if you see the the bishop's the bishop's staff in the West is just a shepherd's staff stylized. But the real one The one that's still used in the east is the staff of Asclepius, the healer of the gods. And you have the shaft, and then there's a cross on top, but there are two figures, serpentine figures that are facing the cross. So in this case, the bishop staff represents a spine and the serpents represent the risen kundalini. And in India, in the St. Thomas Christian Church, the bishop's staff usually has cobras with their, with their hoods raised on, on either side. So uh, when a bishop... In Egypt, went to Cairo, went to Alexandria, sorry, hardly Cairo, went to Alexandria. They first went to the great catechetical center, which was the hub of Christian activity in Alexandria, which was next door to the Serapium, dedicated to the god Serapis, who healed. And the bishop would go, and first he would go into the church there, and he would be with the people, and they would have prayers, etc. And he might speak to them about spiritual subjects. Then he would go next door to the Serapeum and practice healing, right along with the other Egyptian healers, which shows you that the original Christianity Christians, I'm sorry, did not think that people of other religions were heathens under the power of the devil and going to hell. That they were just kind of, in a great river you have many currents. And they knew they were all in one river and there were just different currents. And they could mingle. And this is is the way it really is. And uh, I mean, I've known St. Thomas Christians who lived in Christian ashrams that would visit Hindu ashrams, partake of the prasad, that which has been offered in the temple to the deity, and visit there with those ashramites on a completely one-to-one basis. They didn't see themselves as separated. They didn't see themselves as enemies in any way. So, uh, this is an important thing, thing to realize. So, unfortunately, today, usually, the so called Christian cross is just the crucifixion cross. <laughs> They're so busy to think about Jesus dying on the cross, they figure that he, they forget that he conquered death. that he underwent a horrible form of death, and let's not talk about that. It's so awful. And then he lived. So if it doesn't, if it's not the own form, it's not the cross of life, really. It's not the cross of Christ. All right, now let's talk about the St. Thomas Christian cross. Here it is. I can't, uh, I could back up maybe, but... uh, all right, this is a model. So here we see an equal, basically an equal bar cross. The artist has made this a little longer, but it's this, but it, they should be equal, which is about balance, balance energies. There is a quadrantity in uh, relative existence, and this represents. The perfect balance, the perfect harmony. You have three, against; they're stylized. So really there are 12. This represents the 12 signs of the zodiac. This represents uh, various things. And in numerology... And, of course, there's 12 apostles, etc., etc., etc. It just means the complete picture of everything. That's it. These are decorations. They don't mean anything. What is important is this. This is the Holy Spirit descending on the cross. Saying that the cross, as such, in a sense of belief in Jesus, belief in his death, doesn't mean anything if it isn't made alive. You see, in the prayers in the Eastern Church, the Holy Spirit is continually called the life giver. So it has to be a living entity. And the religion has to be living, and you have to be in touch with the life. A man came to Sri Ramakrishna one time who'd converted to Christianity. And he said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior. Sri Ramakrishna said, So what? What do you know about Jesus? He said, I've actually seen him and I've spoken with him. Sri Ramakrishna was very pleased. He smiled. He said, That's the right way. So it's experiencing the living Christ, which is us. We're all Christs. Jesus is not the Christ. He is a Christ. The Christ is Ishwar. We talked about Ishwar earlier in the satsang. That's the Christ, the the infinite Spirit, and the finite spirits were all potentially little Christs. Christos just means the anointed one. And when someone was made king, they poured olive oil over his head, and they still do. If you want to see something really, really interesting, if you can find the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the Actual ritual, which can be found on YouTube. There is a point where they take the holy chrism, which has been consecrated and empowered. And the bishops kind of gather around her. So you don't see her at the point they really, they take a spoon, they literally pour it on her head. But when they stand aside, you're looking at a different person. It's the same person, but she's still different. And when she rises and when she walks forward, she is a transformed person. Before she was not the queen, and now she is the queen. And when it says, by the grace of God, which Christian monarchs will always say, such and such, by the grace of God, king or queen of so-and-so. It's literally so. By the power of God. Now, uh, we could talk about monarchy, but let's not. Uh, but anyway, uh, this great, and she was one of the greatest people on earth as a person. Not just by a position. But she bore that grace and power and she lived it and showed it and bless people through it. The kings of England used to be considered to have healing powers. In fact, there was a particular illness called the king's evil. They called it the king's evil because the king could touch a person who had it, and they would be cured. I have uh, somewhere, in the, I think the, in the labyrinth of my computer, the ritual which the king of England, now I'm talking now when there were Catholic kings. Uh, I have the ritual that the king used to bless iron rings. They were sometimes called cramp rings. They were meant to uh, cure more than, than just pains, but anyway, but they did use that term. And... He would bless these by the hundreds and hundreds and give them out to people, and they would wear them It would protect them from from sickness. Now, that's what a real king is. And I'm speaking historically. I'm not giving some kind of a a pipe dream about it. So, therefore, the cross is uh, the way of life. In general. Yes, that's all right. Anandamai Ma kriya versus bhakti and jnana yogis. Uh, well what am I supposed to say about Anandamay Ma Babaji Let me think about it. All right. Okay. Uh I'd like to talk to one aspect about Anandamai Ma. Now, I've already said, and I really mean it, You, the only thing you can really say about Anandamai Ma is you can't say anything about her. That is, she was too much to be defined. Just like you couldn't say, oh, Ma always did this. Ma always did that. I remember my very first private talk with Ma uh, no, sorry. My second private talk with Ma, which was up in the ashram in Harudar, and a very great sadhu, Swami Keshavananda, uh was my translator. And he traveled with Ma and was one of the most ideal sadhus I have ever seen in my life. And so Ma was, was sitting there and uh, I was asking questions. He was translating. Then I asked a question and he said, I'm sorry, Ma won't answer that question. She refuses to answer that type of question. And after all, he'd known Ma for decades. So, I believed him, but I said, will you take a chance? Will you ask Ma this question? So he did, and Ma gave a detailed answer. He was amazed. He said, why, Ma just never talks about that, usually. Or never talks, not usually. Ma never talks about that. And usually says no. But she did. So you could never say anything about her. She was never fully here, nor was she ever fully there. She was simultaneously there and not there. My Yoga Siddha friend, Duttabal, said to me, don't believe what you see when you look at Ma. That is just like a little layer," he said. "It's like a like a like skin. That is there so you can relate to her, so she can communicate with you. But he said if suddenly that was taken away, you would die. It would be as though you you would." Gone into infinite light and it would it would dissolve you. And uh, I knew a yogi, a very genuine yogi, who uh, went from America to India. He lived there really for quite a while, wandering here and there. And uh, naturally he wanted to meet Ma, so eventually he went to where Ma was. And so he came up and he went to pranam that means you bow down completely and put your head right on the ground in front of the person and as he was bowing down he thought i wonder who you really are and he said suddenly he was looking into the center of an atomic blast and it just completely as you can imagine disoriented him and he said for a while he couldn't move and then he sat up and sort of and looked at Ma, and he, he couldn't even say anything because he'd gotten some glimpse of that, that infinity. So Ma was beyond our grasp, which is lucky for us, because people like us with small minds, what we can grasp isn't worth very much. And people recognize it. Sad to say, people would say say she's remote. Ma's very remote. Well, she was. Because she wasn't relating to this world. You and I relate to it. We're immersed in it. She wasn't. She was here for us. And so she was always far, far away. She was merciful and kind. And she did great blessings. And yet you knew that the essence of her was infinitely, infinitely away. And I've known people, the type that have to always, they don't know that bhakti means dedication to God. Of course it's love of God. But it's a love that, like, you love your country, you give your life to your country. It's not like, oh, I just love, love, love. So they would say, I've had people say to me, I love Ma, but I don't know if Ma loves me. I won't even comment on that statement, except that it's completely wrong-headed in every way. Ma, of course, never loved your ego. And since you identify with the ego, you're right, she didn't love you. But what was real about you, she didn't just love you, she experienced being one with you. So she had this transcendent aspect and this eminent aspect. But again, She didn't say the same thing all the time. She didn't do the same thing all the time. I mean, I got a little tired of hearing people say, well, Mama, Ma never did that before. Well, isn't that? Don't you think someone who's infant has got infinite (laughs) modes of acting? Oh, I'm surprised. But anyway, so it was. So, you can hardly say anything. There are a a couple of things that I would like to say, though. Though now I only remember one. Maybe I'll remember number two. I'll tell you number one. You see, great leaders, both when they're alive and very much when they leave, Any institutions formed around them, whether they wanted it or not. Now, Ma, by the way, used to say, I have no ashrams. And there were about two dozen places listed as being Anandamai ashrams, uh, being part of the Anandamai Sangha which was supposedly around mother. You think you could put anything around mother? But little people have little ideas. So if they say, Ma, such and such an ashram, she'd say, I have nothing to say. It's your ashram. You started it. I didn't say it should be started. I have nothing to do with it. And that was sort of that. Yet, she personally supervised our ashram for the last 15 years of her life. And I mean, really, supervised it, told me details. Ma even told me how to set up the ashram kitchen. Ma told me all kinds of rules and all kinds of ways it was it was to be done. So, there's this end story about a Roshi that uh, asked someone a philosophical question and they gave him this answer and the Roshi said, that's, that's right. And the next day he asked him and the uh, disciple gave the same answer and Roshi said no it's not true and the disciple said well yesterday you told me it was right I don't understand and the Roshi said yesterday it was yes and today it's no Uh, I'm not going to try to interpret that but it seemingly is a favorite at least Renzi uh, Zen story so Ma was always new, and therefore you couldn't manage. But the anonymous Sangha packaged Ma. They presented Ma. Ma was a commodity. They needed money. They wanted money. And so Ma was a commodity. All of these great ones, they have organizations that they didn't start but suppose devotees started and then they got bigger and bigger and they had a budget and uh so then they started uh peddling books about the great one and and maybe pictures of the great one you see um and it had the image had to please the public so there were all kinds of things that people said about Ma because she, they wanted her to be that way, not that she was, or that the consumers would be satisfied with it. You see? Let me tell you an interesting idea. Ma, of course, was beyond identity with anything and beyond definition, but here's something I expect you will never, ever hear except from me. Not because I uh, got a great spatial insight, but because I doubt if anyone's around that were told this incident. Now, one of my dear friends was a, a Dr. Ghosh, who was, uh, was one of the main uh, people in the founding and the maintenance of the Anandme Ashram in Ranchi Bihar. Dr. Ghosh was a dentist. And just a block down the street, he had his office. Actually, the ashram was meant to be his house. Okay, here's here's something to... uh, No, no, first let me start this one. Forgive me. Um, all right. Dr. Ghosh had some Catholic nuns come to him for dental work. There were two of them. And and he liked them very much. They liked him, and, and they were friends. And sometimes, you know, they would even talk when they came for their, their dental work. And they learned he was a devotee of Ma. They were horrified. Uh, they said, well, she's just a, just an ordinary human being like the rest of us. He said, no, she's not. Yes, she is, they said. So anyway, he said, you know, when you, uh, so one time with one of these, yes, she is, no, she's not. Uh, sessions, he said, when Ma comes next time, I'm going to take you to meet her. So, when Ma came, and was there at the ashram. He took them to meet her. And they just stood there. They didn't say anything. They looked at mom. And later when they left, he said, tell me, is she just a human being? They wouldn't answer him, because he knew she wasn't. Okay, but let's go back now to identities. Ma introduced them to, Dr. Ghosh introduced them to Ma. And Ma said immediately, tell them this body, because Ma usually said this body rather than I, is also a nun. Okay? Ma identified with them and said, well, we're the same kind of people. Because Mother was Kumari. Of course, she was a virgin. But more than that, she had the mind of the sannyasi. She had the mind of the son, And that's how she identified. You see? Nobody will talk about that because nobody wants to be a monk. So nobody wants to say, Mother... I had this attitude, however, in Mother is Seen by Her Devotees, which was the very first book that you could get on Mother uh, at at that time in the 60s. One of the, it was essays of people about their experiences with Ma. One of them said that the only complaint he had about Ma, he said the only fly in the ointment about Ma was her marked, he didn't just say preference, Marked preference for sadhus. And Ma called women Ma. She called our mataji. She called all men Pitaji, father. But very young children... And sannyasi, she called my friend. Not mother, not father. My friend. I sent a letter with a friend of mine who went to India to be with Ma before I ever went. And I wrote uh, in a letter A letter to Ma, I don't remember what was in it. (laughs) But anyway, I wrote her a letter. So, after the translator had relayed Ma's answer, my friend wrote it down. The translator said, Ma considers him a sannyasi. She said, really? She said, yes. Because Ma, before she dictated the letter, she said, write to my friend. And then she said the words. Why? Why? Why this identity? It should be thought about. All right? I'm satisfied with it because she called me friend. Now then, let's think of another. Let's get beyond the borders of India and sell Ma. Let's get the product all past it, all the package, all wrapped up and ready in the ribbon to satisfy everybody and to have everybody. I remember across the street from my ashram, there was a, a restaurant, but they had big uh, ads for uh, fountain pens called Ajanta. and the slogan was everybody likes it so everybody's got to like the product and there's people throughout the world you'd like to sell the product and these people have different ideas they have different religions so Ma identifies with no particular religion Ma identifies with no particular culture Ba identifies with no particular country. I even read in one of the publications, Ba could have been as easily born in Africa as in India. Okay. The question of converting to Hindu religion, so not to Dharma is the right term, often comes up. One time, a few of us from our ashram went to Shivananda ashram. and uh, you know, we went. We went to see some of the uh, sadhus there, and so on. We learned later on that some uh, Westerner had seen us, They're dressed as I'm dressed now, and that he immediately went to some of the ashram officials and began raving at them and saying, you claim you don't try to convert people to Hinduism. In fact, you've said that people can't convert to Hinduism. And I saw those Americans, and they've obviously become Hindus. Now, I never learned what they said to the man. But anyway, that was the gripe. So, Mother's Universal, everything well, it is true. Ma herself told me about two o'clock in the morning one time in the Dehradun Mother told me that she went through a sadhana period. Uh, that's written about it in the books. It was nothing just for me. But she told me that during her sadhana period she practiced Every spiritual discipline of every religion in the world. And she said, therefore, whoever of any religious background came to her, she understood what they were doing. And she could even uh, advise them right in the context of their like real spiritual practice. So this was very differently true but because there's this question and frankly i became a hindu i didn't care if all of india said it couldn't be done i knew what i was already i knew what i was born so i was But I don't know. Somebody made some fuss somewhere online. Anybody who came to Asha, I mean, for heaven's sakes, there's deities there. And we did ritualistic worship of the deities constantly. Uh, We practiced yoga from India. Where else would it be from? We sang kirtan. We sang the names of the gods. We didn't do anything that wasn't Hindu. So anyway, there were some Roman not in the ashram, but outside. So I thought, let me ask Ma. So I said, Ma, can a person adopt Hindu Dharma? By that, it meant on the Dharma. See? Now that's the question. Ma? is it possible for non-indian people to adopt hindu dharma here's the answer no one has to make any observance or anusthana anusthana is kind of it can be a ritual or some kind of observance even it can be stretched to be worship you see And she said this because there were our groups in India that if you're not Hindu and you say I want to be a Hindu, uh, they do these rituals, they do these observances. Usually they have a person fast for a certain period. it may just be a day, two, three, four. Uh, one group uh, has people, Eat nothing and only drink milk because milk is considered very purifying for four days. And then after the fourth day, the ritual is done. They're inducted into Hinduism. All right, so that's what is the thing about the Anastana. Sorry for the long footnote, but so Ma said no one need perform any Anastana or do any particular observance to adopt, here's the words, Omura Dharmo, our Dharma. It's just Ma talking to me. She says, our, our Dharma. It all can sound very interesting and in Advaitic when people say "Oh ma didn't say "I, ma just said this body etc cetera, etc." Cetera. Well, let me tell you when it came to Hindu Dharma, Ma said it was her Dharma. She said, "You need only adopt it and follow it." and that meant you could be Hindu, which is obvious. Because real Sadatna Dharma is just reality. It's just the facts. It's not a series just of beliefs. It's a series of facts. These things do exist. The gods do exist. There are these levels in creation. We do come many times. We do evolve. There is a law called karma. It's just, you know, when I was a kid, the famous TV program was Dragnet, where the main character would keep saying, we just want the facts. That's what it is. It's the facts. In one sense, it's not a religion because it's superior to all religion. But it's the only real Dharma. Same. But she said, our Dharma. Ma Anandamai was a Sanatana Dharma. Yes, then then she was a Hindu. And you know, when you draw close to the fire, you get warm. And when you got close to Ma, you, you figured out what you were. And that's the real truth. I have had people and yogis and very, very honorable people and good people say to me, Ma's ashrams are too orthodox. They are the most orthodox ashrams in India. By orthodox, they meant orthodox Hindu in a sense of strict, strict, strict observance. And that was right. And I'm happy to tell you that I went there and I stayed there and I watched them and I did the same. I followed what I learned. You see? Because that was the only way I was going to be in sync with Ma. I mean, I couldn't really be Ma or be like Ma. But this is the truth, and those that don't like it can just go away and whistle Dixie. But Ma was a 100% Hindu. Now, a 100% Hindu appreciates and honors and feels at one with all religions. So we're not talking about a sectarianism like, well, I'm in and you're out. But this is the real truth about Ma. Now, There we go. I've been wanting to say it for quite a while. If you think someone is divinity walking the earth, aren't you going to do what they do? I never knew of Ma observing Yom Kippur. I never knew of Ma observing Easter. And go on and say all the rest you want. But she certainly did observe, and I mean observe, all the festivals and all the disciplines and all the ways of India. So people can lie to themselves about Ma all they want. I don't care. But this is the truth. And I, I think you ought to know the truth. And that doesn't mean I'm saying, oh, you need to adopt Dharma. I, what's it to me? But dharma is my life, and I don't believe I would have life without it. That's the truth. Just knowing Ma would not have given me life. Knowing Swami Shivananda, they—they they were both God on Earth. But let me tell you, the thing that gave me life was dharma which is the way of life. You know, I'm I'm speaking to you as a friend, just very openly and totally. That's the way it goes. If monkey see, monkey do, then human being ought to see as humans do and then be a human being himself. Can I tell you a story? One of my favorite stories. The Kumbha Mela, which is a great gathering of of of, uh, Sanatana Dharmis, Hindus, which takes place every four years and then there's the Purna Kumbha, the one that's the big one and tremendous amounts of people come and uh, it was held in Nashik, the holy city, where Sri Gajanam Maharaj lived, actually. So anyway, uh, a friend of mine, a Marathi friend of mine, whose family uh, was originally from Nashik, but his uh, parents had moved to, to Bombay. Anyway, they went, of course, for the Koma, to Nashik. And uh, he was there. He witnessed this. Uh, There are four Shankaracharyas, that is, major spiritual figures in the order of Shankara, according to north, south, east, and west of India. And there is, in the west of India, the Shankaracharya of Dwarka. Dwarka was the kingdom that uh, Krishna ruled for a while. So the Shankaracharya of Dwarka was there in Nashik for the Koma Mela. And, uh, of course, people, by the tens, not hundreds of thousands, filed through to see him and so on. But when Rahul went there, uh, <clears throat> there weren't a lot of people around. And this British woman was bragging to the Shankaracharya of all the, I guess you could say, Hindu things that she did. You know? She did this, she did that, and so on. And various observances and so on. When she finished the, the brag list, the Shankar, Shankar charya said, that's very good. Keep it up. And in your next life, You may be born a human being. I mean an Indian. We're going to pick up from where I left off. I had actually uh, stopped the previous session uh, and talking about Ma and Hindu Dharma. And uh, I realized that I hadn't even answered this question fully and I've got two more. Okay, fine. So it's hidden under my mouth. Babaji. Uh, I think there is posted on uh, our ocoy.org website uh, an account of three people I've known who have seen him. Uh, He's a real person. He's not something that Yogananda made up, that he's real. Uh, I became very well acquainted when I was in RANCHI in the Ananamaya Ashram with Dr. Mukherjee. Dr. Mukherjee was the disciple of a great, great yogi named Purnananda. The only problem is you've got hundreds of people with nearly all the same names in the Shankar order. But anyway, he was a disciple of a great Swami, Purnananda. Purnananda was a disciple of Babaji. Purnananda lived quite a while with Babaji, and then would occasionally go be with him. He is not inaccessible to the degree that people often think. Certainly not public, come one, come all, but there it is. So, and he told me that Rabindranath Tagore, first of all, Devendranath Tagore, the great, great famous spiritual figure of Bengal, there's a whole chapter of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna about uh, the visit of Devendranath and Sri Ramakrishna together. Uh, Devendranath was the father of the famous poet Rabindranath Tagore. Devendranath was a disciple of Babaji. He had stayed with Babaji, and when uh, Rabindranath Tagore was in his teens he sent him also and he lived for some time with babaji so uh, you see babaji had many disciples and they all taught different things it's a very interesting thing to see i uh, i'm not so focused i can remember all the names i may try sometime and then i'll talk to you about them and they and because he had he knew people have this kind of mentality teach them this then to the others you teach this this other way and uh so the truth is through even in our own time about half a dozen of his own disciples Babaji was, therefore, in a sense, though unknown, one of the major influences in, uh, in spiritual India today. That's, that's as much as would be good to say. All right. Kriya versus Bhakti and Jnana Yogas. Well, uh, there's no verses to it. In other words... Bhakti is just a marga; it's approach, and jnana is a, is an approach of discrimination and intelligent analysis, and the other is more of a, but it's the idea of an intuitive reaching out toward God, not just of saying, "Oh, Christians, you're so beautiful, oh, boo hoo boo I just love you." That's mental off, mentally off. That, that's not the way. That's emotion. You see. Yoga, uh Nama said constantly, devotion is not emotion. That doesn't mean there can't be an emotion there. But even love is greater than what most people think love is. Real love Raga Bhakti. Intense desire for union with the beloved. This is a real thing. So they're just approaches. So a person could practice a particular method, and in their personality, they could be more of the character of of bhakti, more of the character of jnana, or karma. Positive action in a sense of helping and uplifting other people. So uh, there's, uh, there's no conflict. Between them, because there really truly is apples and oranges. This is uh, the thing. However, uh, I will tell you that Ananda said to me, I think I've mentioned before, that in her entire life she had never advised anyone to practice the method known as Kriya Yoga. Of course, that's just a name. I knew a man, I knew a disciple of Swami Kesha that you read about in autobiography. He said, I practiced it for, for 25 years before I ever heard the term Kriya Yoga. But anyway, Ma said that she did not recommend it, that she did not recommend Raja Yoga in any form because she said it deceives its practicers. It gives them only a touch of what they really need to have completely. But they're deluded then, and they think they have attained something. But in time, all the effects of the practice will leave them, will evaporate, and they will be left empty. And now, empty is the word she used. They will be left empty. And I. And that was true because uh, I met direct disciples of Yogananda in India that were in charge of his organization, both Atmananda and uh, Satchidananda. And they were just burnt out old men. I really mean that. Because see, Raja Yoga depends on the function of the endocrine glands. And when you get old and your glands, yes, including, you know, your gonads, don't do the stuff, then it, the practice doesn't do anything anymore, you see? And uh, so uh, Swami Satchi just. Didn't even pick up his feet when he walked. He just shuffled around and just looked kind of blank. But I saw a photograph that had been taken of him about, say, 15, 20 years before. He looked like a god. It was an amazing photograph. I mean, his eyes and everything about him. You'd say, well, there is a yogi and there's a super yogi. But like Ma said, it evaporated, and he was left empty. And the same with Swami Aptananda. Both two actually miserable and discontented people. And I've seen others in the same. And, uh, you know, nice people, moral people. I mean, admirable on certain levels, but they were a burnt-out husk, and that's the nature of the practice. Oh. All right. Coping with the decline of a loved one. Yes. Um, the loss of, of, of someone unexpected could be a terrible thing, but even more terrible to see the fading away. There's no description of what just particular decline is, but I understand it. And please don't think that I'm being very glib. It's very easy. For a person who isn't in a situation to tell others to uh, not worry and not bother and not feel bad. There's only one way to cope with it. You have to be strong in yourself. And literally in yourself. Not your personality, not your whims, not your emotions. Be a yogi. The very summation of the Gita. I'm serious. Sadhana, sadhana, sadhana. And that will help that person. Because believe me, if you practice sadhana, if you just sit near them, they're helped. If you're doing japa, your aura extends out. They're literally, literally in. Your aura and they're in the vibration of your sadhana. And this will help them. Doesn't mean they'll restore them. It doesn't mean it cannot, because it may. But this I can tell you, if you get them acclimated, and if you can be there if they do when they leave their body, they will have a lift in their next life. And that's more than most people can do for the people they love. So you will have done it. This is really the truth. Just look at them calmly and do jump. And feel that the jump is vibrating through their whole body and through their aura. This is not a little thing. Believe me, it will help them. It will help them. I knew a man whose grandmother was dying. And he loved her so much. And she was in the hospital. And so one night he sat up the whole night. And he did Joppa. And he thought of her. The next morning, when his mother and father went to visit the grandmother, It was in another town from where my friend lived. When they came in her room, she looked at them and said, you won't believe this, but Robert was here by my bed all night. And you know, I don't feel any pain. I feel really good. She breathed out. So I knew the man and I knew his mother and his father. And it really happened. So it, it really worked. This the this is the is true thing. But please accept my sympathy. I I do understand. Yes. Oh, I just kept this to say <laughs> to say something. Yes, okay, fine. It says no question today. Much gratitude for you. Thank you. And the same to you. Thank you for listening and for those who did give the questions. Thank you for the questions. But also thank you to any friends who just came by because although i don't see you though when it's going i see certain uh of of the people that are that are watching their picture appears Uh, i know i'm talking to people who are interested i know i'm talking to people who are serious who mean it And I know I'm talking to people who have the ability to keep going further, further, further. Sri Ramakrishna had a parable where a man who was actually going to cut down trees, he was a wood gatherer, he met a sadhu. And the sadhu said, go further. And it was a big forest. So he started chopping and he thought, wait a minute, he said go further. So he went further. And he discovered some very rare, he, some sandalwood trees. Sandalwood's very valuable. So he thought, good, I'll cut these down. He started, he thought, wait a minute, but he he said, go further. And so he he went further and he found where there was a deposit of iron ore. He could tell from the terrain. And he thought, well, go further. And he went further until he even came to a place where there were gems that would be dug from the ground. So it became fantastically wealthy because he kept things going further. Therefore, go further, go further, go further. And then one day, You'll be the further, and you won't need to go anywhere again ever.